Welcome to Byzantium and Friends. I am your host, Anthony Caldellas. In the 1070s, as the Seljuk Turks were overrunning Asia Minor, the judge and historian Michael Italiates compared the ancient Romans to the Romans of his own day, his own people. The ancient ones, he said, were patriotic and selfless, and they made sacrifices for their nation. They were scrupulously religious. The modern ones, by contrast, were cheats, liars, and cowards, and they gave no thought to religion. This is certainly not how we think of the ancient Romans on the one hand and the Byzantine Romans on the other. Today, the ancient Romans are considered as a pragmatic and practical people. The style of their civilization is marked by roads and aqueducts. Our first instinct is not to think of them as a particularly spiritual or religious people. The Byzantines, on the other hand, we do think of as especially religious and pragmatic only when it comes to their army and its tactics. Now, this is not going to be an episode about reception, but it is clear that reception has a lot to do with these contrasting images about ancient and medieval Romans. The ancient roads and aqueducts survive, and ancient Roman texts on urban planning, aqueducts, and agrobusiness were chosen for survival, whereas texts about their religion were not, not even the most important ones, such as Varro. By contrast, the institutions of Byzantine secular culture were largely wiped out during the Ottoman period, whereas their churches, monasteries, and religious texts survived at a much higher rate. And therefore, we have the stereotypes that we have received. There are two challenges here. One is to think of the ancient Romans as a very religious people, which they absolutely were, although this is a topic for another time. If you want to think about this in the meantime, try to imagine Constantine the Great not as the first Christian emperor, but as a man of deep Roman piety. Our challenge today is to think about the Byzantines as pragmatic, even as canny pragmatists in the planning of their careers and finances. Today's discussion is with Dimitris Kralis, the professor and director of the Hellenic Studies program at Simon Fraser University. And our discussion will focus on the aforementioned Michael Ataliates. You might know Ataliates otherwise as our first um, eyewitness account of the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. You might also know Dimitris as my co-translator of the history of Ataliates. Ataliates is possibly the only non-imperial figure of the Middle Byzantine period whose economic biography we can discuss in such terms. He was an investor, an entrepreneur, and a businessman, and there's no reason to think that he was unusual in these regards in his Byzantine contexts. However, we know about these aspects of his life in particular because he tells us about them in the charter that he wrote for a monastery that he endowed toward the end of his life. This monastery seems to have functioned as a tax shelter for his property, so that his estate planning reached into the next generation and encompassed his religious life as well. And yet, it is only because this monastic charter survived that we know anything about his business dealings which reinforces the point about how reception filters everything that we know and don't know about Byzantium. This may have been a society of agricultural investors and entrepreneurs. We just don't see it that way. Moreover, a great deal of Italiati's wealth seems to have come from his salary as an employee of the imperial state. The importance of this source of revenue for men of his class casts doubt on the existence of an independent aristocracy in Byzantium. The discussion is based on Dimitri's recent book, Serving Byzantium's Emperors, The Courtly Life and Career of Michael Italiates. Here, then, is my discussion with Dimitris Kralis. Hello, Dimitri, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for hosting. You know, there's uh, this grim mortality statistic about podcasts that most of them don't make it to their 10th episode. Uh, and, and you are my 10th episode. So we just have to survive this. <laughs> well, I don't know what that means in terms of the long-term viability of this podcast, but I made it to 10. Uh, so we'll see whether that means I'll make it to 20 or 360. Uh, anyway, okay, so let's turn to um, uh, Michael Ataliates and the general question of... 
uh, Byzantine secular men of affairs. Uh, so people like uh, bureaucrats or top administrators. Um, so what is it that drew you to the study of these people? Well, I don't think that I started being interested in bureaucrats uh, specifically early on in my engagement with uh, uh, Byzantine uh, studies. Uh, I have a BA in political science, and uh, from early on, uh, uh, questions of uh, modernity and bureaucracy were uh, of interest uh, uh, to me. The whole uh, uh, Max Weber and rational governance uh, uh, issue. Uh, when I encountered Byzantium, uh, it was a very different place in many ways. There was uh, palace intrigue, dynastic politics, civil eunuchs, and of course, uh, a lot of uh, orthodoxy. But at the same time, there seemed to be some sort of bureaucratic uh, structure. And uh, to me, that was a bit of a tension. This uh, uh, idea of modern rationality associated with bureaucracies, and on the other hand, assumptions about how the whole thing was a dynastic, theocratic uh, kind of mess. And I think it started uh, with that. I only came to Ataliatis as a tool for exploring this uh, somewhat uh, later. And even when I started working with Ataliatis, my questions were not really about his biography and his role necessarily as a, as a bureaucrat. I was looking at his work uh, and trying to understand what he was trying to do ideologically. Uh, so uh, that's the beginning uh, with, uh, with Ataliatis. Only after I started uh, looking at his ideas and uh, uh, thought of his ideas as part of debates uh, uh, within his own society, the question of uh, who is he and uh, what is the class of people to which perhaps he uh, belongs uh, started uh, uh, arising. And uh, at that stage, it became clear to me that this category of people, these uh, state officials, broadly defined if you want, must be more interesting than just people who occasionally write a history. And uh, it must certainly not just be a fig leaf for uh, otherwise dynastic politics. At that stage, I started asking more questions. A person like Ataliatis can write laws. A person like Ataliatis can uh, participate in a treason trial of an emperor. And then he also writes history. So who is he? Who are these people who are like him? Yeah, so what is it that they do? I mean, we'll get to the questions about ideology um, and uh, you know, the ideology that's reflected in his work um, later on. But let's start with the sort of foundation of their work, uh, because writing a history and a few other texts that we have from him uh, didn't take up most of his time or his career. This isn't what he primarily did. So what is it that these, that these people primarily did in the overall context of Byzantine civilization and why is studying that work an important question for, for us historians? I mean, are they um, a distinctive part of Byzantine civilization? Do you see them as, um, as marginal, as fundamental, as ignored? I would say that uh, uh, they are a, an essential uh, component of, uh, of Byzantine um, uh, civilization. Uh, you know, we have this... Uh, distinction that appears in uh, Ataliatis's contemporary, Psellos, about the genos politikon and genos stratiotikon. This idea, uh, perhaps uh, almost uh, uh, reminiscing of uh, Samuel Huntington and the division of uh, civilian class and military class uh, uh, from 20th century uh, analysis. Uh, and um, uh, this has been a, a, a distinction that has shaped a bit of reading of uh, uh, Byzantine history. There were clashes between different categories of people uh, in Byzantium. And it has, of course, been nuanced uh, and uh, even critiqued uh, by scholars uh, in, from the 90s uh, onwards. However, what I'm interested here is this whole idea of a genos, uh, which gives us a certain sense of genealogy and continuity and almost uh, of a category of people who existed continuously and had a, a string of offices and officials uh, traveling through time. And, and I'm interested in that idea because I think it says a lot about the permanence of this uh, category of people. Right. No, that's a very interesting point. I had never actually thought of it that way. Uh, in other words, that when you use the term yenos or against, uh, applied to basically a professional career, it does treat them as a kind of uh, uh, a class that reproduces itself uh, and has some sort of descent tradition right through the centuries. 
Um, so, yeah, so what is it that they do, the Llanos? So I, I imagine that you would put Ataliatis in the political Llanos? Or? Yes. Uh, I mean, What is uh, it that they do? He's a fascinating character, of course, because um, he steps outside uh, his, uh, his Llanos and is really interested uh, to engage with members from uh, the other category, the military category, in Pselos' dichotomy. But uh, uh, in many ways, they participate in, uh, in governing uh, the state, in, in doing the essentials of... Uh, uh, participating in legislation, in um, uh, staffing the courts where uh, uh, basically the citizens' disputes are adjudicated or where uh, cases of treason against the state uh, uh, will be dealt with. They, uh, depending on their expertise and on their trajectory within the officialdom, will find themselves in positions of uh, managing the finances and having to advise emperors about uh, questions of uh, uh, finances. Uh, in many ways, they do what most bureaucrats would do today. I would see, however, their careers as slightly more fluid in that uh, uh, they m- may jump from one uh, office to another depending on uh, uh, their uh, relationships, uh, uh, relationships at, uh, at court. If you want to think about it, uh, they quantify what it means to be part of the Roman polity. They take care of cadastres uh, for uh, uh, taxes. In many ways, they measure the Roman polity. They judge the Roman polity. Right. They are doing a lot of measuring, um, both uh, legally, right, and, uh, and f- fiscally in terms of taxation. Um, but we don't really use them to measure the Byzantine polity. Um, I mean, they norm- I think that they're normally a, a marginalized class uh, in the tradition of Byzantine scholarship. Uh, but we can get to that kind of question later. Let's uh, take a particular case, uh, mm-hmm. and this one is Ataliatis. Um, can you briefly tell us uh, who he was and what makes him important um, and possibly even unique um, for scholars who want to study the issues that you're interested in? And, mm-hmm. so, and so how do we know about him? Well, we know about him uh, mainly from his historical work, uh, the history, uh, a text uh, uh, written sometime in the uh, 1070s, conceivably based on notes that may have been compiled even a bit earlier, uh, but certainly dedicated to, uh, to, to an emperor in the late uh, 1070s. Uh, so uh, the interesting thing with Ataliatis is that, again, uh, when you try to look at him as a bureaucrat or as a member of the officialdom, uh, to be more accurate, uh, you stumble upon the fact that uh, for us scholars, he's a historian. And we need to set this aside. And we need to look at the very beginning of his own work where he clearly says that this is something I did on the side of my very busy schedule at the courts. So this, uh, this is something that we need to, uh, to keep in mind. Uh, we're very lucky with Ataliatis because uh, next to his um, historical work, uh, we have uh, a monastic charter uh, which uh, survives, which uh, helps us understand the way that he organized his uh, financial affairs. And uh, in the richness of that charter, Ataliatis is quite unique. Uh, What we get there is a a capacity to engage with his uh, economic activities and with even concerns about his status and his family affairs uh, that we don't get from other people. It's concentrated kind of uh, fairly granular detail about uh, uh, his uh, economic social and to some extent family life. Though don't imagine, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings of family. It's more about how you organize a, a right. household. It's, it's a disposition of properties and, yeah. and so on. But it, it's a fascinating text because it presents a kind of economic autobiography. Yes. And, and in, to that degree, it's possibly unique uh, from a man of his position, mm-hmm. uh, right, in Byzantium. Uh, we, we, we're used to getting... Uh, family autobiographies or intellectual autobiographies uh, or religious autobiographies, certainly, but uh, not uh, economic ones. Yeah. Um, so let's look at his life a, a little bit and we'll, we'll get to how he um, amassed and then disposed of all of these properties. Um, so you and let's sort of delve into his background a little bit. And I think that you do a wonderful job in the book in, in reconstructing what life was like in the city of Italia when he was growing up there. Um, and uh, specifically, you draw attention to the role of the state and the various institutions of the state and their local projections in structuring social life there. 
Um, and I think that was unique. I mean, it really caught my attention because uh, when we talk about um, uh, you know, Byzantine provincial cities, and I, I should say that the city of Italia is a, is a coastal city um, on, um, in South Asia Minor um, and uh, was, a, was an important naval base. Um, so when we talk about Byzantine provincial cities, it's very often in terms of, um, you know, local, a local perspective with small horizons and the state is something distant or interested only in making sure that there are no disruptions to its tax collection um, or um, that the city, you know, the exploring how the city is um, st structured around the celebration of a particular saint um, and the church and the bishop and the local festival are, you know, central to the way in which we understand uh, civic life in the provinces. And what you do is point out, you, 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 you sort of draw out some of the implications um, for demography, economy, and society in Italia from other facts that we know about the place. So could you, could you give our listeners a little bit of a, that kind of a taste of that reconstruction? Yes, so uh, with Italia, uh, in a way before I ever tried to find uh, information about uh, the archaeological reality or what it looks like, uh, I started from a very uh, basic reality of our sources. Uh, it is really a navy town uh, for the purposes of uh, a North uh, American uh, audience. It is something like San Diego. Uh, basically, uh, it doesn't have aircraft carriers, obviously, uh, but it has a, a permanent presence of a significant chunk of the Byzantine uh, fleet. Uh, conceivably, the only larger fleet that uh, the Byzantine polity would possess would have been in Constantinople. Um, and unlike Constantinople's fleet, which may be mobilized uh, occasionally for grander imperial campaigns, this is an active fleet because this is a hot frontier for centuries. Uh, so our sources, uh, and uh, we have both historical sources and the peculiar case of uh, uh, the Book of Ceremonies with these sub-files that are either misfiled or weirdly filed about uh, naval campaigns tell us that fundamentally out of Italia you could expect at any time uh, anywhere between 30 to 50 ships to be sailing uh, towards uh, various waters, whether these are campaigns against Crete or whether they're more often campaigns against uh, either pirates or uh, Syrian uh, naval forces uh, of the Caliphate. Uh, so uh, we know about Byzantine uh, warships, a few things about uh, numbers of rowers, uh, uh, numbers of marines that would uh, be on on, that would be boarding them. And the simple math would basically tell you that uh, 30 ships by anywhere between 150 and 200 rowers and marines uh, makes a serious complement uh, of uh, uh, navally engaged individuals uh, permanently present in Italia. Uh, we're basically talking about anywhere between four and 6,000 people depending on uh, the complement of the fleet at any given time. That is a huge number of people. Um, and it's not simply a huge number of people in terms of its demographic uh, implications, because you can imagine that these people have wives, uh, they have uh, children, and if we uh, posit a nuclear family of four people, uh, that automatically gets you anywhere 15 and 25,000 people that could be directly associated with the state, because these are people paid in gold by the state. Now, the plain of Italia itself is a large plain with some agricultural capacity. Yes, it's slightly malarial, or maybe not slightly, yeah. uh, but you know, people did live in malarian environments anyhow. So you can start thinking about an agricultural population associated with this military population. And then suddenly you have a provincial city, which is surprisingly large. If 11th century Paris, I think was perhaps around 50,000 people. Now, if Italia is 20,000, that's not insignificant at all. <laughs> Right, right. And, and in addition to the, so that's the demography and it, it's a huge impact on the local economy, but there's also the customs house, right, in yes. Italia. Can, yes. you, can you say a little bit about that? Yes, this is one of the kind of ports of entry for, uh, for international uh, trade. And for all that we tend to think of uh, Byzantine history as a series of wars with um, strong enemies to, in every frontier, frankly, uh, trade never stopped. Uh, there was uh, uh, constant communication, uh, so much so that sometimes because of war, 
Byzantine emperors would have to set embargoes for certain goods getting out of uh, uh, Byzantium. So this is indeed a port of entry. There's traders who come from everywhere, whether they're Syrians, Egyptians. Uh, we have references in the sources of uh, all manner of uh, Jewish denominations finding themselves in, uh, in the city. We have a cult uh, of the Virgin Egyptia, so the Egyptian Virgin in Natalia, which might give us a few hints about the kinds of cultural connections that the place has to the southern part uh, of uh, the Byzantine uh, uh, world, or in this case, not the Byzantine world. Uh, so this is a place open to the world in a way. It's a place that clashes with uh, neighbors, but at the same time communicates intensely with uh, merchants from all around. And of course, there's state authorities that collect taxes and dues for everything coming in. Yeah, I think it was like a 10%, right, on the, on mm -hmm. the, uh, on the value of the cargo being brought in. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think this point uh, bears emphasis that so if you look in some maps in uh, in modern books uh, uh, that are trying to capture the direction of trade and it, the maps show these these graceful arcs um, from the eastern Mediterranean to the Aegean and up into Constantinople as a sort of main trade route. And they get wrong this very important point, which is that those trade routes were required to stop at ports of entry, and Atalia was the one for that uh, uh, route, um, where they had to declare their goods and pay a 10% tax, uh, import tax on them, and then, and then move on. So this was a place where significant revenue was also collected uh, for the state, um, and where, of course, merchants from the entire eastern Mediterranean would be stopping. Um, so... All of these kinds of events would st structure not only the economy and the demography, uh, but also um, the rhythms of daily life even, right? Like so for Ataliatis, who was growing up there in the early 11th century, there were a number of kinds of events occurring there because of these state structures um, that you know, really shaped his childhood. I mean, things that he, he would have experienced. Could, could you say, you, I mean, you found some of these events. Could you talk a little bit about them? Yes, I, I, I have um, a sense that on the basis of uh, the reconstruction of his, uh, of his life and of when he would have left for uh, uh, Constantinople, uh, he most likely would have uh, uh, been present when uh, one of the last significant uh, Muslim raids uh, uh, into these waters uh, uh, ha would have taken place uh, for his uh, for his for his period of time. So it's the in the early uh, 1030s. Uh, I think it's a fleet of Sicilian uh, uh, Arabs who are uh, uh, who are roaming and uh, find themselves uh, in the area. They sack uh, Mira, uh, which is uh, pretty uh, pretty close to to Atalia, uh, and you have to imagine. Uh, uh, that again, this is a uh, Defcon Five uh, right. for um, for the Byzantine Navy. They need to uh, to get into action. You have to have a fleet being mobilized. You have people who are otherwise uh, involved in all other manner of business because we have to assume that these Marines were involved. Uh, in other kinds of economic activities, and I think we should talk about this in, in, in a sec. Um, all these people suddenly have to rush towards the fleet, and of course you can imagine families uh, being concerned about them. There is always uncertainty in battle. The, the history of sea battles is a history of uh, very uncertain encounters that can go either way for all manner of reasons, uh, least of which the liquid element, which is uncertain. Uh, and uh, you have to imagine uh, the departure of uh, the Byzantine fleet almost in Thucydidean terms, the departure of the right, Athenian right, fleet right. for Sicily. Right, right, right. The impact that this kind of activity would have on society. Now, if I may return to the issue about uh, multiple kinds of economic activities associated with yes, these, yes. these marines, um, Ataliatis, in a strange part uh, of, his, uh, of his historical work, Strange. It's a, it's an encomium to Nikiforos Votaniatis, and he started trying to trace his genealogy, uh, tracing it back to uh, Nikiforos uh, Phokas. Uh, has refer makes reference to the campaign of Nikiforos Phokas, the famous 10th century uh, warrior and eventually emperor, uh, to capture uh, uh, Crete, 
and uh, Atalietis uh, uh, gives a short account of uh, of the of the campaign and notes that at some point Nikiforos wanted to dedicate a, a temple to God to ensure victory. And when he discusses uh, that dedication, he speaks uh, of the speed with which the workers from the fleet worked, uh, constructing the church within three days, and says that this was possible because the fleet's marines and uh, oarsmen were basically all kinds of tradespeople. And uh, you will say, okay, this is one data point, but it gives you a bit of a hint of the kind of... Um, enmeshed kind of existence that these people would have lived. Yes, they're rowers, but at the same time, they're perhaps uh, on downtime, which is most times, uh, also have other lives as members of the economic uh, uh, community of, uh, of Atalia. Right, right. Um, so let's turn to Ataliati's own economic uh, history or biography. Um, and um, so first, could you say just a few words about his overall career, his official career once he goes to Constantinople? Um, and then um, maybe a few words about what his assets, economic assets, were when he moved to Constantinople, um, and how did he subsequently acquire wealth? Uh, what, what were the main sources of his income after that? Yes, so we have to start with a, a basic fact that this is a, a provincial individual who has enough resources to travel to the imperial capital uh, in order to seek education. This is not uh, Basil I uh, arriving, according to the story, as a farm boy and being hired uh, in the stables of an aristocrat. Uh, this is someone who starts with a greater degree of comfort. Uh, so he must be carrying at least some sort of pouch of gold, uh, which allows him to, uh, to set up a shop in uh, Constantinople and basically uh, become a student. Uh, parents these days who send their kids to university uh, are aware of how complex uh, these uh, plans will have to be uh, to set up uh, a family member uh, far away from home for success. Uh, so obviously to be able to do that, he comes from a relatively comfortable background. Um, however, Ataliatis does not want to claim uh, noble background uh, in the Diataxis, his monastic charter, he emphatically explains that he's a self-made man. So maybe he's not ready to acknowledge his privilege, but um, uh, he certainly wants to say that, okay, whatever my parents gave me, I everything else I did myself. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that we know him as Ataliates, which is just basically a blockative, I mean, he's just, he's Michael from that town, right? That indicates that he doesn't come from a family with aspirations to a surname. Yes, with some sort of other important patronymic. Exactly, like you wouldn't know him from his name, in a sense, right? It just tells you where he's from. Exactly. At the same time, I, I would like to think that this Ataliates thing... Uh, was a choice of sorts that uh, indicates a, a certain commitment to this identity, to this provincial identity. And maybe we can come back to that uh, uh, at, some, uh, at some point. Yeah, so how did he acquire wealth once he uh, reached Constantinople? Or, I mean, between the, the time that he arrived at Constantinople and the dispositions that he made in the diataxis, where we know, you know quite a bit about his properties, how, how do you think he acquired that wealth? Yes, yeah, so he uh, arrives in Constantinople uh, most likely uh, very early in the 1040s. Uh, there is uh, evidence in his historical account that suggests that this uh, will be the case, and uh, this will be for the purposes of, of an education. Uh, we have uh, uh, a blind spot, if you wish, in his, uh, in his career uh, from basically that spot to uh, the mid uh, uh, to late uh, uh, 1050s. Uh, the first evidence that we have that he's doing well and he's being established is in the 1060s. So there is a, there is a, a period about which we don't know much. Uh, we can only uh, speculate that uh, in order to reach a court position uh, by the 1060s, he would have had to have perhaps some associations with the courts. And we could speculate that uh, as someone who studied in law, he stayed perhaps next to the courts as a paralegal in association with uh, smaller courts in, um, in the capital. However, but, but, but the, yes, this, this suggests to me, now, now, that, I, now that I'm listening to you, um, that, that his, his origins really 
could not have been that um, distinguished if it took him 20 years to reach a high position at the court. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Be- because otherwise, if you come in with a name and you're so-and-so's nephew or connection or you have a patron, right? I mean, normally it happens much faster. So and, he worked his way up through the ranks of some bureaucracy, right? And at the same time, here's where the diataxis, the monastic charter becomes essential because he gives us information about his, uh, uh, his wives. Uh, so uh, his first wife is not anyone of note. The uh, only thing that he gets from her is, uh, uh, only thing, that's not a small thing, is some real estate. Uh, and uh, she does not have a title. Uh, her his second wife comes with relatives mentioned in uh, the monastic uh, uh, charter uh, which, uh, uh, who, who carry titles. So we see that the second wife's relatives have bear the title of protospatharisa. These are female relatives who carry probably uh, a male, uh, their husband's perhaps uh, title, uh, though here again we're, we're speculating. Now protospatharios is a, a kind of title that you get as you make your first steps into the senatorial uh, aristocracy uh, or the senatorial class, if you want to say, in the, in the 11th century. So with the second marriage, we see him uh, uh, getting a bit more uh, established. Even if he himself is not in the senatorial aristocracy, someone from that background bets on that horse in that they're on their way to something. And... Um, in the 11th century, a decent legal career uh, seems to have been uh, a path to success. Uh, what with reforms in legal education, uh, what with the expansion of the uh, Byzantine uh, state, uh, the 11th century before the crisis comes is a period when the Byzantine state has its uh, largest extent in centuries. So there's positions to be filled for running all this operation. Yeah, this was the period uh, when uh, Constantine the uh, Ninth Monomachos uh, opens up senatorial positions or court titles for, uh, well, allegedly many, many, many people. And uh, we have a number of sources about how he opened that up, even to more sort of mercantile classes uh, and so forth. So it seems that Italiates was perhaps one of the beneficiaries of that expansion um, of those uh, circles. Um, so, uh, apart from advantageous marriages, where else is he getting uh, resource, either cash or real estate from? Well, uh, you start uh, uh, receiving money as part of your salary from, uh, from the courts. As you acquire titles, uh, you will um, start increasing the amount of uh, uh, salaries, uh, uh, amount of uh, salary that you would uh, receive. Uh, so, uh, scholars in the past have uh, made a calculation that by the end uh, of his uh, uh, career, Ataliatis uh, uh, had done indeed rather well. Uh, he's not um, a Fortune 500 by, by any means, but uh, he has a, uh, an income of about uh, 260 nomismata, uh, gold coins, uh, per, uh, per year. And uh, the calculations for his, uh, for his estate would have, uh, are of about 150 pounds of gold. And, and I want to come to these numbers because they are uh, meaningful. They're not completely abstract. In my, in my classes, my students often ask me, so what does this mean? Um, how, do we, uh, how do we compare this um, with, uh, with modern uh, realities? And it's really tricky, of course, because uh, you could uh, buy a book uh, for uh, $30 today, but in Byzantium, uh, a cheap book maybe is uh, one gold coin, and that's uh, one-fifth of a worker's annual salary. Uh, The usual example I have is uh, uh, the price of donkeys. I consider one donkey to be half uh, a pickup truck. Uh, So (laughs) a donkey in Byzantium, according to our sources, is around four gold coins. So Ataliatis can buy 65 donkeys a year or 32 <laughs> pickup trucks on the basis of his salary, if you would like to make right. this rough calculation. Uh, 
Um, this Wait, is, how many donkeys? Uh, 65 donkeys. 65 donkeys. Uh, and a donkey is half a pickup truck? Uh, that's my calculation. Okay. You could contest <laughs> this, obviously, and we could debate okay. this. And, and a, a college education today costs you maybe about two pickup trucks a year? Something like that. So he could send his uh, son to college <laughs> for 30 years? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's uh, all right. And, and to, to, to give you another uh, sense uh, uh, to go away from uh, the animal kingdom, um, he owns uh, a, a property which he rents to uh, another Protospatharios for 36 gold coins uh, uh, a year. So it gives you a bit of a sense of what you need to start getting established in Constantinople as an income. If to have a household that is respectable enough for someone entering the Senate, you need to sp- spend 36 gold coins. Right. So as far as we can tell, his main source of income was salary. Yes. Yes. Right. And then and perhaps, I mean, he's a judge, so maybe bribes. I mean, you know. Yes. I mean, there is a, there is a debate about how much the judges can collect in the 11th century uh, from the courts, from the courts as a, uh, payments fee. from as a fee. As a fee. Um, right, right. Uh, there is an argument that uh, this practice is uh, much more restricted in the uh, 11th century. Uh, uh, century, uh, but certainly there may be all sorts of uh, fees coming in. But the important thing to keep in mind is the evidence that we have from uh, his uh, the material he's left uh, for us is that he does not sit idle with his salary. Uh, he seems to invest. This right. Salary. So what does he invest in? This is interesting. Well, uh, he he invests on uh, real estate, basically, and land. Um, and, uh, and in that, perhaps he's in a privileged position being a judge because he understands how to use uh, the law and whatever uh, tools are available to him uh, in, the, um, uh, in, the Byzantine, uh, in the Byzantine economy. Uh, so uh, the diataxis, his, the, the charter tells us that he came to Constantinople having relinquished his, uh, the familial properties uh, in Italia. So those go to his sisters about whom we know nothing else. Um, so he, he left his... So any stake that he had in the um, sort of parental properties, he left to his sisters. That's uh, that's the uh, that's the, the the claim. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and it's a yeah. side note, kind of. Uh, uh, so um, he comes to uh, to to Constantinople through his first wife, gets some property. Property through his second wife, he makes some deals where he promises future payments to gain access to some real estate. So. These deals in and of themselves are interesting because people in his general family background now are ready to trust him enough to hand uh, over to him uh, property in exchange of future returns, which in and of itself tells you a lot about the expectations for success uh, of a well-educated individual in, uh, in Constantinople. And as a judge, he would also know, like he'd have his pulse right, on where disputes are happening, what the value of different lands was, where, right? Because even people from the provinces are bringing their disputes or appealing them to Constantinople. So he can probably spot a good investment. Absolutely. And we don't think of uh, uh, the Byzantines uh, as economic agents in that term, usually. Or or as canny economic agents. Yes. Yes. But but Ataliatis surely was that. And I think uh, a set of examples from uh, what becomes almost his adoptive uh, city, uh, the city of Redestos, modern-day uh, Tekirdag in uh, in uh, in uh, European Turkey, uh, are rather interesting for us uh, because uh, in Redestos you see him uh, investing on lands close to the western gate of the city. We don't know much about that uh, in, in, in real terms, but his text gives us that. Uh, he also seems to uh, invest money on uh, local pious institutions in that same area, almost as if he's buttressing the real estate investments with some goodwill from the local uh, community. And uh, it's interesting to see what he buys. He buys clasmatic uh, land, which is a really interesting category of, uh, of land in Byzantium. It is uh, the kind of land that the state hands over to people once it has become uh, 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 non-productive because it has been abandoned by its uh, owners. And uh, the state takes it over and hands it over to, uh, uh, to investors, if you want to use a modern term, uh, granting them tax exemption for a number of years so that they bring it back to productivity in order then that they, the state can return to taxing these resources. So Ataliatis invests on clasmatic lands, 
there is a suspicion that he might be converting them into actually built space. So conversion of agricultural uh, reserve, uh, to use uh, modern urban planning terms, into, into urban development. And, uh, and then he mobilizes his connections at court to ensure not that they will remain uh, untaxed forever, but to ensure that the people who would be responsible for assessing them so that they can return to being taxed will never set their foot on those lands. So he understands that you cannot convert a plasmatic land into a permanently untaxed uh, 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 real estate uh, chunk, but he finds this uh, legal loophole and says, no orthotis, the restorer if you want, uh, the person who will assess the land in order to return it to the tax registers can never set foot on his land. So, so how, how are those lands then registered and taxed? It's unclear to me. It's unclear that the plasmatic land that cannot be reassessed in order to be taxed will be taxed. I mean, would the default tax register be that before he took it over? In other words, from the previous owners. Right, so that the land is owned and taxed and then abandoned, and yes. the state keeps records of what its tax worth was before yes. it was abandoned. Exactly. So if, if he can ensure that it is that under his ownership it's taxed at the previous rate, but meanwhile he's invested in it somehow and makes it more productive, he's gaining tax-free, you know, increased productivity. Absolutely. Uh, what I am curious, however, with this uh, question of the uh, banning of the orthotis is. Uh, whether that ban simply leaves the land completely untaxed because you need to have an assessor to assess the value of the land for it to ever return into taxable status. Right, well, even better for him. Then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? So with these lands and the investments that he makes in them, so what kind of a, uh, a sort of private system of economic exchange does he set up? Uh, because it appears that there's some interrelation among all of his different properties. He sets yes. them up to be connected in various ways. What are those? Yes, so um, the land that he owns in, uh, in Redestos is uh, uh, land located in, uh, in what is basically uh, the granary uh, for uh, Constantinople. Uh, this is the, the, the grain fields that produce uh, the food uh, for, for the capital after the loss of, uh, uh, of Egypt uh, in, uh, at the end of uh, uh, antiquity. Uh, so this is fairly productive uh, uh, land. Uh, and Redestos itself is a, is a, has a port. Uh, it is uh, connected uh, uh, via shipping uh, to, to Constantinople. Uh, Ataliatis uh, himself in Constantinople owns a number of properties, some of which he organizes into, uh, into a monastic complex. And in that monastic complex, we know that he actually has uh, a mill on which he can uh, process uh, grain. Uh, and interestingly enough, we also know from uh, the properties that he owns in Constantinople, that he owns uh, a bakery. Uh, and in his history, he huffs and puffs about uh, uh, imperial measures that uh, aim to uh, uh, nationalize private peers uh, on the shores of Constantinople, which were used, uh, aside from the large harbors of the city, for goods to come into, into the capital. So one could conceivably uh, reconstruct an image where someone who owns lands in uh, a grain producing area uh, uses uh, uh, shipping to uh, transport it to Constantinople and load it on some private pier, which maybe he owns or someone uh, he knows owns, transport it to his monastery, process it, and then push it forward to a bakery where it can be sold as, uh, as bread. It, it's a fairly integrated, kind of uh, economic uh, enterprise. And at every level, Ataliatis might be uh, collecting some sort of revenue. Well, I mean, if he owns all these properties, presumably the, the bulk of the revenue would come with the end product. And I mean, he might be selling grain along the way and keeping only part of it for the bakery and then selling the, um, the, uh, the bread or many other baked goods. Right, so he's basically a little agro-business plus food uh, dispensary, right? I mean, he, and he's operating that entirely within his own properties. And, and he's doing that, of course, even as he has an official state career. Right, so right. It, and it he's is, a judge, right? And he's a judge. And when um, he addresses his son in his monastic charter, 
specifically dealing with the possibility that his son might want to dip his hands in the coffers of uh, the monastery and take a, away resources that are specifically earmarked for, uh, for the monks, he says that if my son ever needs more money, he should work hard like his dad and succeed. Right. So there's an ideology of a self-made man here. Very much so. Right. Very so, much so this is a person we ordinarily, most people who encounter Italiantis think of him as a historian, like you said earlier. But he seems to have been a sort of businessman, right, and professional bureaucrat or judge first and, and only later, you know, secondarily an author. Um, okay, so you mentioned this monastery. And so let's move from the acquisition side to the disposition side. Uh, so, you know, once he's amassed these properties, um, which, you know, sounds significant, though I don't think these, this would put him into the class of the super rich or anything. I mean, he By seems no to means. be well off, but not uh, someone who could, uh, you know, intimidate, uh, you know, anyone else in the imperial class or anything like that. Um, so what, what arrangements does he make for the future of his property? Well, we don't know everything about the uh, whole property that he, uh, about, about all the properties that he owns. Uh, we know about those that he organizes uh, uh, into a monastery. Right, right. So we're going to be talking uh, about those. We, we don't know, for example, uh, what kind of real estate uh, his son Theodore uh, inherits uh, directly or has assigned oh, right. directly like, to him. Like his house in Constantinople. Yes. Like, this is not mentioned in the Diataxis, right? No, I mean, it, what is mentioned in the Diataxis is uh, a house that was probably the first house that he might have owned in the city. But uh, once he upgrades, once he moves out of the burbs, however we want to, or into the burbs, however we want to imagine this, we don't know uh, what, what, what there is there. Uh, but, uh, but we do have this monastery. And uh, um, it, is a, it is a peculiar organization in that it is a mix. It is a monastery in Constantinople uh, organized around a number of buildings that he used to uh, own uh, and uh, a church. Uh, and uh, it is associated with a poor house in uh, Redestos. In fact, it is subordinate theoretically to the poor house uh, in Redestos. Uh, but the information that we have are about the staffing of the monastery, if you wish. Um, and uh, in the case of that monastery, to which, uh, uh, in the case of that monastery, we know that Ataliatis assigns uh, five monks to begin with, hoping that at some point he might have enough resources to fund seven. So it's not a huge uh, establishment, but there's nevertheless uh, five people who from the get-go uh, are given uh, resources in order to live in this institution. In fact, you mentioned that they're, that they're given a salary. Yes. Th this is striking to me. I mean, monks, yes. monks receiving salaries is a little odd. They're, they're, they're given a salary and on top of that, rations uh, for, uh, daily, for their daily bread. And, and also all these monks are supposed to be eunuchs, right? Yes. Or we're not sure about that. I am not sure about that, yeah, frankly. Yeah. Uh, because uh, he says that uh, the, mo the monks are supposed to be eunuchs, but at the same time he says that during my lifetime, uh, bearded men who are uh, of a certain age and above uh, and are uh, uh, som somber and sober and serious individuals can be taken into uh, the monastery. Uh, the eunuch, stipula eunuch stipulation to me sounds like uh, security for uh, what happens after I'm no longer there. When my son is there and I don't know how good a judge of character he will be in uh, recruiting. But again, at first sight, yes, it's, it, it's a eunuch monastery. So it seems to be some sort of retirement home for eunuch or bearded officials of his similar kind of class. Yes, and he specifically stipulates that these people will be either lawyers or accountants. Okay, uh, so retirement <laughs> monastery for lawyers or accountants who receive a salary for being monks in this institution. Which makes it even more surprising that he actually specifically stipulates that they should not have parties in the monastery because lawyers and accountants, I don't know uh, how exciting that uh, <laughs> gets. Um, well, okay, this might be a kind of monastery with, you know, wood panel rooms where the 
all these monks sit around, you know, reading the Constantinople daily and drinking brandy or something. I don't know. It could be one of those kinds of monasteries. It looks uh, a bit like uh, Oxford College. <laughs> so, yeah. So what is its connection to the poorhouse in Redestos? Administrative. Uh, I assume that uh, uh, there is uh, resources traveling back and forth. But I, the, the details of how this is uh, connected, I'm not sure. Are Wait, so is there, is there a separate staff? In the poorhouse? Uh, yes, but uh, uh, it's not as clearly outlined as uh, the uh, as the monks at the monastery. Okay. Yeah. So why has this scheme, um, this disposition, been called a tax haven? Well, because it seems that of the resources apportioned to this, uh, about one third goes towards fulfilling the needs. Uh, or, and the activities of uh, the monastery in the poorhouse and the rest goes straight to his son. So it's almost as if it's a way to launder resources uh, and pass them on to uh, the son as a uh, sacred, uh, sanctified kind of uh, asset. So the son receives the sort of surplus production of mm -hmm. this monastic complex tax-free? Presumably? Uh, not completely tax-free. Uh, Ataliatis uh, gets uh, uh, two imperial decrees uh, from uh, uh, Michael VII and Nikiforos III, uh, imperial decrees which include long lists of uh, exemptions. Most of those exemptions are not from the basic tax. Uh, those are exemptions from all the extra uh, burdens that the Byzantine state uh, uh, in uh, its wisdom and in the 1070s in its need uh, could uh, impose uh, on anyone's property. For example, uh, the billeting of soldiers is uh, right, explicitly right, right. prohibited and uh, there's a whole list of uh, uh, ethnic uh, units uh, of soldiers which are uh, listed in this, uh, in this document. So Ataliatis had to engage in some you know, pretty subtle M political maneuvering at the court in order to secure these imperial decrees right of exemption for his of exemptions because I think he lists them at length right you have to list each specific thing that your monastery is exempt from um, in order to secure these uh, I think he gets uh, two yes right from two different emperors yes. um, and um, so again it's a really fascinating case I think of of how you see someone um, who is leveraging both um, insider judicial knowledge plus political connections at the court in order to make um, some very, um, well, self-serving economic planning decisions, right? And I, th I think it's very rare in the case of Byzantium that we can see all of those three things operating in, I mean, they, obviously this happened fairly often, right? But I think he might be the only case where we can see it in such detail. Yes, and uh, and at the same time, expressing in his historical work satisfaction every time hardworking emperors uh, go after exactly those exemptions. Yes. <laughs> Which yeah, is yeah. ironic. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's more than ironic. I mean, I think this is... Um, so, I mean, he does have a kind of ideology of hard work, um, so he's fairly consistent about that, right? Um, he's even willing to kind of impose it on his son uh, in the future. And he, he does tend to evaluate emperors um, based on how hard they work, you know, and, you know, managing the assets of the entire state in the same way that he manages his own personal assets. Uh, but there are a lot of cases where, uh, you know, his, his, um, his politics about any particular issue is really... Um, uh, determined by the textual needs of the moment, um, right? And I mean, th this I, you're referring what, what you're referring to, I think, is the uh, um, his glee when Isaac the first exactly right abolishes all these monastic privileges and makes the monks you know really work for their vocation. Yes, which would have led to a real crackdown on his own. Uh, right. Yeah. Had it happened in his own Had times, it, it would yeah. have been um, exactly very much a problem. And, and to go back to how hard one would have had to work at court in order to ensure that uh, all these uh, special privileges stand. Uh, it, it's interesting to look at the case of uh, 
Pselos, who himself uh, needs to lobby repeatedly in order to ensure that he has fresh decrees uh, to protect, uh, I think, a monastery he owned uh, that had some tax exemptions. And uh, Pselos' concern is that the local, uh, the local officials uh, will ignore imperial decrees. So every year he had to basically go back and get some sort of renewal to ensure that he has the latest paperwork because officials uh, of the same class as Ataliatis who seek the same exemptions could also, on the flip side, when they're sitting on their desk and they're trying to do their job, uh, be fairly diligent in trying to collect taxes. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's his, there's a conflict of interest there. Um, and I, I, I think it's significant that the list of exemptions, of, of uh, tax exemptions for his monastery, is positive rather than negative. A, 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 right? In other words, I mean, he has to identify by name all of the potential impositions that the state can place on his properties rather than say um, exempt from anything but the basic land tax yeah. which suggests to me that the state is then incentivized to concoct new taxes with new names or this, the same old taxes with different names yeah. uh, simply in order to get around all of these exemptions periodically right and this might actually have led to a proliferation of different tax names. Like, I mean, as Byzantine historians, right, we're confronted with all of these weird taxes. We have all these, you know, dozens of names for them, but we don't know what they were. Yeah, it seems that it is a, there is a tax name inflation in the same way that there is a title inflation in the, in the 11th century. Things are being invented left, right and center. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in the 6th century, there's the so-called air tax. And we, Arikon, and we have no idea what that was really but anyway okay so uh we mentioned ideology a little bit um in the beginning and i'd like to close with this um that is so we've we've outlined the career and economic biography of a kind of byzantine man of affairs um do you get a sense that he that this um socioeconomic position and his career uh, resulted in in him having any particular kind of ideology or just you know view of society uh, that might link might have linked him to a particular class. That was was he expressing the interests of that class or any ideology that uh, you can associate with it? To tell you the truth, I'm still struggling uh, with uh, with this question, and um, I have uh, I have been shifting my position uh, over the over the years as I've as I've looked uh, to Ataliatis because this question in some ways also connects with the broader issue of his approach to Roman history and the Roman past uh, and how he imagines uh, the operation of the Roman state going all the way back to, uh, to the Roman uh, Republic. And uh, when I first started uh, reading Ataliatis and I encountered uh, his engagement with the Roman past, uh, I had a fairly mechanical kind of uh, logic uh, with which I tried to explain uh, what that meant. And I basically thought, uh, okay, 11th century, economic growth, economic growth, uh, rise of urban uh, classes. Uh, uh, so appropriation of uh, the ancient Roman past is what people do when these things happen. Look at Italian Renaissance. Uh, we're in a similar phenomenon. Um, and um, one could say that uh, elements of that might be there. I mean, Ataliatis is a person who's doing well at a time when there is indeed uh, uh, economic uh, growth in the Roman state, uh, who does uh, get a career as uh, that Roman state has become larger and it's basically hiring. Uh, and uh, he also carries titles. He at some point is a patricios and an anthipatos, basically a, a proconsul, proconsul yeah. um, who, who is a member of the Roman Senate who's also reading Polybius and is thinking about the Roman past. So it is highly likely that if, even as he thinks about the titles that he bears, he starts thinking of himself in a larger Roman context uh, as a member of a new successful class of people increasingly represented uh, in, um, in, uh, in what is a deliberative, consultative, whatever you want to think about uh, uh, the Senate uh, in the 11th century. According to some uh, of our colleagues' calculations, perhaps up to 2,000 people 
like him would have belonged uh, uh, to uh, to this uh, to this body. So it is not inconceivable that uh, in uh, making uh, a career that leads him there, he also develops a certain ideology that associates him with the other people who are uh, members of that uh, body. And uh, that finds an expression through his interest in um, uh, the ancient Roman past, uh, where all this uh, starts uh, being in need of further problematizing is um, uh, where it encounters uh, your work and the whole uh, Byzantine Republic uh, argument. Because uh, if uh, there is a latent uh, never, that, never have it, that, that has never died uh, sense of uh, a monarchical republicanism in, uh, in Byzantium, if uh, there is uh, a sense that uh, indeed the emperor is but a high official serving the people, then uh, uh, Ataliatis' uh, republican ideology is not just a self-serving class ideology, but it is a broader, uh, all-encompassing ideology of service to the polity of the Romans. And maybe adding that element to the self-serving component is useful to understand a person whose historical work seems to give you a sense of a certain agony for the crisis of the Roman polity. You read Ataliatis, and however much, of course, you will stumble upon the self-serving elements uh, of his own career in economic dispositions, uh, you get a sense that he really struggles with the crisis of the Roman state. And this is not just a crisis of Constantinople. This is a crisis of populations throughout the lands of the Roman territories. Yeah, as I imagine someone like him would, I mean, making his career and his fortune in a way that was so dependent on imperial service would be very tied to and, you know, dependent on the whole imperial order and so forth. But at the same time, he would also be, um, you know, very interested in limiting imperial autocracy in a number of ways, um, especially given his, his skill set um, and in emphasizing um, how emperors should be, you know, more consultative um, and especially more dependent on the on the body of people like himself. Yeah. And there is a specific uh, instance in the history where you get a bit of a hint of that. And that connects us with the point uh, on which we began uh, about the genos of the bureaucrats. Um, he specifically notes that uh, Nikiforos Votaniatis passed legislation and we suspect that he's involved in that. Uh, which guaranteed that people who served previous administrations that are now being toppled uh, will have to uh, be respected and not persecuted by the new regime. Uh, this is a person who at a time of uh, uh, sort of systemic crisis where uh, there's multiple rebellions happening, uh, tries to think of a framework that guarantees continuity of governance outside the rebellions. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, that's um, that, that's a, a law that ostensibly guarantees the continuity of the civil administration um, independently of whatever happens on the throne. Um, you, I mean, you can almost see that as a small case, a, a smaller version of the, the continuity of the Roman polity uh, as a whole, uh, regardless of what happens uh, on the imperial throne. Um, anyway, that so that, that's an we're almost out of time, and that's an interesting note on which to end. Um, the uh, final question I have for all of my guests: because um, you recommend two books uh, that are not necessarily about Byzantium, but uh, that you would recommend to our listeners is good to think with. Okay, so um, two completely different uh, uh, works. Uh, one is uh, a work of uh, science fiction, which I think is uh, oh please <laughs> is uh, is interesting. Uh, by Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, science fiction uh, writer. Uh, it's the trilogy in the three body, uh, the three body problem. Um, uh, for various reasons, I'm interested in this uh, in this work. Uh, first of all, because uh, it is a work of science fiction coming from uh, a non-Western uh, perspective and uh, approaches uh, uh, questions that are very interesting to us. 
um, in ways that are perhaps a bit different uh, with um, uh, other kinds of nuances and other kinds of uh, sensibilities. Um, and in doing so, it's a bit of a, uh, a warning for all of us dealing with uh, past societies, uh, which in a way are also alien cultures, uh, as much as they might feel familiar, uh, to, to think about the ways in which what is written um, are, um, are to be very carefully uh, approached. Also for questions of translation, because uh, volume one and volume three uh, of this uh, work are translated into English by a Chinese uh, uh, translator. Uh, the second volume is translated by a Western translator. And there is a distinct difference in the way that the language uh, works. It's interesting that you should mention that because I, I actually read the first volume. Uh, and then I started the second one and lost interest. Um, I, 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 and I didn't know that it was a different translator. So maybe I'll have to go and uh, uh, look at, uh, back at that. Uh, but I, I, I find what you're saying very interesting. In other words, um, like one of the best ways to understand uh, a foreign culture is to see how it views an alien culture, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, and we do that with uh, Byzantium too. And the second one? Uh, the second one, with all the dangers of uh, butchering someone's name uh, and apologies, uh, Petra Sipestein, uh, Shaping a Muslim State. Uh, a book on uh, the early, uh, very early centuries of uh, Muslim rule in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, a book uh, based on... Uh, a lot of uh, research on uh, papyrological uh, evidence. Uh, in a way, uh, the kind of evidence that uh, Byzantines would love to have in, um, in larger quantity so that we can uh, better understand what people like Ataliatis and his fellow officials would have done. Uh, and I'm interested in that work specifically because of how it can help you imagine the scope of governance and what is encompassed in governance and how even the paperwork uh, can be crafted and uh, uh, and of course uh, the analogies with Byzantine bureaucracy will not have will not be uh, complete uh, uh, things could be rather different but at least it helps you think uh, of the parameters within which we have to start uh, imagining uh, the governance of uh, a polity like Byzantium itself. Oh yeah, I mean uh, Egypt is <laughs> Egypt is a gold mine when it comes to these kinds of things, and the the papyri are just absolutely amazing. I mean, I I've gone through periods where I uh, I just randomly read through papyri on the the papyri dot info site, uh, which I recommend to anyone who uh, uh, might uh, might enjoy passing the time that way. Um, uh, all right, uh, Dimitri, uh, I, I think we should wrap it up there. It's uh, been a genuine pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's been great being on. And I look forward to our next uh, conversation. Okay, thanks.